Thanks for listening to the podcast from Old Town Church in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Old Town Church is passionate about making disciples for the glory of God in Old Town and around the world by inviting people to know the gospel, experience biblical community, and live on mission. If you're in the Rock Hill area, we invite you to join us for worship every Sunday. If you're not in our area, we encourage you to find a gospel-believing church near you. We hope this podcast is a blessing to you as we seek to follow Jesus and the grace of his gospel. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, church. Great to be with you this morning. We uh, have a number of people at a fall retreat, and so just thankful for them, praying for them, their time away. If you do have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to open with me to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. And as you turn there, let me pray for us as we get started this morning. Father, we are grateful for your grace today that you have... Um, by your mercy, uh, saved us, where we counted a privilege to be able to gather together and sit under your word. We pray that you would use your word to teach us to uh, lift our eyes to the Lord Jesus, to stir our affections uh, toward your goodness, that you would make us more into the image of your Son. We pray for our friends who are away this morning, that you would uh, refresh them, encourage them, God, that you would give them a a sweet time uh, on the retreat, Lord, bring them back safely. And God, during our time together here this morning, we just uh, pray that you would be honored, that you would be glorified, and you would draw many to yourself as we uh, look to the Savior. We pray in his good name. Amen. What is the best question you've ever been asked? In a recent survey, people shared the most thought-provoking question they've ever been asked. Maybe you can identify with some of these. Questions like, how do you define the word love? Or what career would you have if money wasn't a factor? If you've got kids, you've probably been asked the question, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? Or how about this? I read one question, if snow could fall in any flavor, what flavor would you choose snow to fall in? Real real thought-provoking. Or there's a question that we all always lie about, right? Do you agree to the terms and conditions, right? We're We're all liars, let's admit it. Or maybe the question with the most obvious answer, would you like to upgrade that sandwich to a combo meal? And the answer is, of course, always yes. I love good questions. Good questions come from being observant and being curious. But what happens when those questions lead you to crisis? What happens when the things that you see in the world and your experiences in life lead to questions of confusion, questions of doubt, In Psalm 73, you have a crisis of faith brought on by a question. The psalmist's name is Asaph. He's looking around the world and he's noticing that things are not as they ought to be. And he asks this question, why do the wicked prosper? Maybe it's a question you've asked. Why do bad things happen to good people and why do... Good things happen to bad people. I think for many of us, it's a question that we struggle with. Why do the wicked prosper? And Psalm 73 is Asaph unpacking this question for us. And so I want to look this morning in two parts as we look at Psalm 73. First, I want to just walk through the psalm together. And in the second half of our time, I want to focus really on verse 28, which is the climactic conclusion of this psalm. And so let's walk through 
Psalm 73. Verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph is noting something about God, by God's character. God is good to Israel. He's good to those who are pure in heart. In verse 2, he gives a contrast, though. He says, but as for me, is there something different going on? As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He's saying there's something different here, right? God is good to Israel. He's good to those who are pure in heart. But for me, there's, there's something different, it seems like. Something different was going on. Verse 3, we see, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. His feet almost stumbled because he was envious. He was looking at these wicked people and their prosperity, their success. And he was envious of it. And that caused him, he says in verse 2, to nearly stumble. This is the center of his crisis, the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on to detail this. Verse 4, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They have no trouble. Right? Life is easy for them. They are somehow both fat and sleek. I don't know how you accomplish that, but they, they've got both here. They've got plenty. They, they, they want for nothing. Right? In the ancient world, uh, obesity is the sign of, of wealth and of status. The poor lacked extra food. They lacked the leisure to sit around and grow fat. And so that's what he's saying when he calls them fat. He's saying they have so much, and they're basically gorging themselves on it. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Things go well for them. They're not, they're not struggling. They're not suffering. Life is easy. Unlike everyone else who's just trying to get by day after day, these people don't have any troubles or worries. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. They have no accountability. They're they are prideful. They're arrogant. And they're, they're showboating their wickedness. Right? They're, they're putting their wickedness and their sin on display. They can do whatever they want. And they do whatever they want, and they boast about it. They're prideful. They flaunt it. They're not hiding it. There's no, there's no shame for them. They're wearing it like a, like a necklace, like something you, you put on to show off. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. And so he gives them the contrast, right? And in contrast to, to righteous people, faithful people who are working hard to survive and to be faithful... These evil people gorge on food until their eyes pop out. He's using this figurative language here. Their eyes are, are popping out of their heads. They have so much. He says their hearts overflow with follies. That is, th their imaginations run wild, right? They have more than the wild imaginations of their wicked hearts could want. And we see verses 8 and 9, even their speech is wicked. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues struts through the earth. They scoff, they speak with malice and hatred. Out of their pride, he said loftily, out of their pride, they, they threaten oppression of other people. They threaten to take advantage of other people. They're not fearful of repercussion. They can basically come in and, and say what they want and demand what they want and threaten for it. 
They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut through the earth. What a, what a picture, this, this strutting tongue through the earth. They're speaking out. They're speaking against God. They're arrogant and they're prideful in the way that they speak. They're not, they're not whispering behind closed doors, right? They're declaring their sin loudly. They are so secure in their evil and in their wickedness that they can speak openly without any concern at all. And why shouldn't they be concerned, right? Life seems to be going really easy for them. Verse 10, Therefore his people, that is God's people, turn back to them and find no fault in them. God's people turn back to these arrogant, wicked people. They don't find fault in them. The, the wicked people are deceiving God's people. They are an ungodly influence, and they are turning God's people away from him. They're causing God's people to turn away from, from faithfulness. God's people look at them and they say, they just have it all together, right? Look at all their success. The people are, are taking worldly success and worldly fame and worldly ease as a sign of righteousness. And they're saying, if it's working, they must be right. Things are going well for them. They must be on to something. Verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Notice their arrogance. Right? They're asking, how could God know? There's, there's no way God knows. Maybe more aptly, God has no power in my life. Who is this God to tell me what to do? Why should I care what he thinks? He doesn't know. He doesn't see. It doesn't matter what God thinks. In verse 12, he, he summarizes all this. Right? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. They do terrible things, wicked things, and yet they prosper. They succeed. They're famous. They're wealthy. Life is easy. They don't have problems. They're not struggling like I am. They're not suffering like I am. They have the good life. And in his heart, Asaph is discouraged. And he's envious. He's in turmoil. We see this in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. His outward observation of the world and of these wicked people is now turning into inner turmoil. Right? He's saying, all in vain, all in vain. What, what good has it done me to be faithful? All in vain, I've tried to be faithful. All in vain, I've tried to keep my heart clean. All for nothing. They hate God, everything goes well for them. I'm trying to be faithful and life is hard. I feel stricken. I feel rebuked. I feel beat up every day. They have no problems. Why? He wants to know why. And he's afraid to ask, right? He's, he's afraid to really say anything about it. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's letting us inside his inner struggle and he's saying, if I had gone around to God's people and spoken about my struggles, my questions, my concerns, my frustrations, if I had said this out loud, I would have led people astray. I would have been part of the problem, leading people away from God. So he bottles it up. What a temptation for us, right? 
to be just like Asaph here. We've got questions, we've got doubts, we've got concerns, we've got frustrations, we've got struggles. And we feel the need to put on a face, to put on a show of having it all together, always being faithful. We, we've got it all together. We ne- we're never struggling. And so we bottle those things up. And then we get to verse 16 and 17. And we see a pivot. We see a change. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, he's looking at all of this. In the world, the wicked people prospering, in his own inner struggle. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He's trying to be faithful, but he doesn't understand why. Why is it so hard? Have you ever felt like Asaph? Life is hard. And I'm trying to be faithful and it doesn't make any sense. He says it seemed wearisome. It seemed overwhelming to understand why things are this way. He's trying to wrap his head around the disparity. And it seems impossible. Verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Notice what he's done here. He has questions. He has doubts. He has frustrations. He's having a crisis of faith. But Asaph has the intellectual integrity not only to ask the questions, but to pursue answers. Sometimes people dismiss Christianity because they have questions, and they think their questions are enough to undercut Christianity. But they refuse to actually pursue the answers to their questions. But God is bigger than our questions, right? He can handle them. He's not scared of them. And so what does Asaph do? Where does he go? He goes to the sanctuary of God. He goes to the place of God's presence and the place of God's people. Where God's people would gather together before the presence of God to worship him. He's essentially coming into what we're doing right now. He's coming into the worship gathering with God's people. He's hearing the word of God. He's worshiping God. He's being reminded of what is true about God. He comes into the gathering with blinders right here over his eyes. His view of the world is short-sighted, it's myopic. It doesn't make any sense to him. But he goes into the sanctuary and he goes from here to here. And now his hands are stretched out in praise. His view is expanded. And when his view is expanded by the presence of God and the people of God, he now has a wider perspective to see what is going on. There is a pulling back of the curtain and now he sees more clearly. And what does he see? Verses 18 to 20. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord when you rouse yourself. You despise them as phantoms. He sees their end. And their end is ruin. God will judge the wicked. And their end is certain. Have you ever tried to remember a dream after you've woken up? Maybe it's one of those great, really cool dreams. You're flying, you got some sort of like superpowers, or you're, like you're, you're just doing something really great. And you wake up and you're like, man, I want to remember that. That was really cool. It was really fun. Uh, and, and you try to remember it. But trying to remember a dream after you've woken up is kind of like trying to grab hold of the wind, right? The more you think about it, the more it seems to fade away. 
And that's what he's saying here. The wicked are like a dream that God will forget. They will fade away. And God will judge because he is perfectly holy. The arrogant ask, verse 11, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And the answer is unequivocally, yes. God not only knows, but God will have the final word. And this judgment of the wicked is actually a comfort to Asaph. He recognizes that God will prevail. God will judge the evil in this world. Yes, the wicked prosper, but only for a season. They act like God doesn't exist, but one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. In this world, there will be trouble for the faithful, but we know the one who has overcome the world. And this is why Asaph is comforted by God's judgment and why we can be comforted by it too. Because he will bring an end to wickedness and evil and suffering in this world. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He reflects on all of this and realizes he too, Asaph too, was was ignorant and foolish. He recognizes that he was foolish just like them. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Asaph says, I was foolish, I was wicked, I was like them, but look what God does. He knows that he is with God. Why? Because you hold my right hand, he says. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. Not only is Asaph aware of the end for the wicked, he's also aware of the end for the righteous. God will receive him to glory. The path of the the wicked leads to ruin and destruction. The path of the righteous will lead to life and joy. This is the message of the book of Proverbs, right? There are two paths in the book of Proverbs. There are two ways to live. You can either choose the path of the fool who says in his heart there is no God, or you can choose the path of wisdom, which begins with the fear, the reverence of the Lord, an acknowledgement of who God is. And Asaph comes into the sanctuary of God and he remembers the character of God and the promise of God. He remembers that God's got him. He's going to be all right. And the turmoil of his heart begins to settle. The storm begins to calm inside of him. And that shouldn't be surprising We have a God who specializes in calming storms. And God replaces Asaph's turmoil with peace. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's looking at the prosperity of the wicked, but he comes to know that despite all that they seem to have, there is nothing on earth that is compared to knowing God and nothing on earth that he desires besides God. His heart has changed. His heart was envious for the ease and the prosperity that he saw with the wicked. He said, look how great they have it. I want that. But now his heart is content. He has one desire, to know the God who created him. 
He says his flesh may fail. His heart may fail. He may not have it easy. But the invitation to the Christian life is not an invitation to an easier life. It's an invitation to a satisfied life. And so he can walk through this crisis to the other side. Because even in his crisis of faith, God is holding on to him. Verse 27, he summarizes what he's learned. He's he's coming out of the crisis of faith in 27 and 28. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. It's easy to think that Asaph's crisis of faith took about the length of time it takes to read this psalm. But we have to remember that this psalm is written after he comes out of this crisis. He's looking back. He's reflecting. He's on the other side, and now we are beneficiaries of God's faithfulness to him. God has carried him through the valley, and now we get to see God's faithfulness. And here in verse 28, you have the gospel. The word gospel means Good news, and God has opened Asaph's eyes to good news. Verse 28 is what I call a gospel verse. It is a one-verse summary of the Bible. The entire message of the Christian faith summarized in just a few words. And so I want to draw three gospel truths from verse 28 in particular. First, I want us to see that we are made for God's presence. What do we learn from this? Well, we learn, like Asaph, that we are made for the presence of God. It's, it's in the presence of God that we find understanding. I went to the sanctuary and I discerned their end. It's in the presence of God that we find satisfaction. Whom have I in heaven but you? Nothing on earth I desire besides you. We need his presence. French philosopher Blaise Pascal paraphrased, he said, There is a God-shaped hole in the heart of every person. And what do we do? With this God-shaped hole in our heart. We try to fill it up with a bunch of stuff, right? Deep down, we want to be the people who have success and the money and the pleasure and the fame, the influence, the prestige and the easy life. And so we fill our hearts with all the things that we think are going to make us happy. But they will all fail because we are made for God and only he can satisfy us. And so we commune with God. We spend time with him because we... We realize, we know this relationship is the very source of our lives. He is the life-giving well who refreshes thirsty souls. These are Jesus' words in John 7. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. So do you find yourself identifying with Asaph's crisis? Come to God's presence. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Number two, we are in need of God's rescue. Asaph has made the Lord his refuge, he says, his shelter, his safe place, his place of salvation. And we need that rescue. And what do we need rescue from? Why do we need a refuge at all? Well, we need God's rescue because we live in a broken world. We see that here in Psalm 73. We live in a broken world. There's a deep injustice, there's violence and war, sickness, famine. Many other terrible things, you, you check the news and that's all you can see. It's not lost on us, right? Often in the mornings, my wife will 
turned on the news while she's eating breakfast. The other morning, our four-year-old daughter asked her, Mama, can I watch my show when you're done watching your problems? <laughs> she gets it. Things are not as they should be. The world is broken because of sin. It is infected. The world is infected with the disease of sin. It corrupts and it corrodes. So we need rescue because we live in a broken world, but we also need rescue because we are broken people. And this is where the Christian faith becomes deeply offensive for many people, right? We live in a therapeutic culture that tells us that we are naturally good and the answer to all of our problems can be found in learning to accept yourself and forgive yourself and express yourself and love yourself. And all the answers in you are in you if you would just follow your heart. But it's not true. Right? Our hearts are wicked and deceptive. What's inside of us isn't answers, but sin. We're not inherently good. Sin pervades every fiber of our being. Our natural disposition is bent towards sin. We are far from God, separated from the source of life because of our sin. But God is good. Not just in the sense that he does good things, but that all goodness is in him. So sin, that is unholiness or, or anti-goodness, can't be in God's presence. We have to fight to understand this and accept that we are broken and needy people. I fear that far too often many followers of Jesus equate sin with not having enough money to cover their, their check at the restaurant or the coffee shop, right? Like, oh, I'm just I'm a few dollars short. And Jesus swoops in with a couple extra dollars and covers the remainder of our bill. And we make the gospel small because we're tempted to make our sin small. But that's not our story. Our sin was massive. And only when we recognize that our sin was massive will we recognize that God's mercy is extraordinary. All the things that Asaph is writing about the wicked people, that's us. That's me. That's you. There was a vast gap between us and God, and we were on our way to ruin. But then Jesus Christ breaks into history, and he breaks into this world to rescue a people for himself. He is the faithful one. He comes and he lives perfectly, holy to the end. There's no violence in him. There's no malicious speech. There's no hate. There's no deception. There's no betrayal. He never lies. He never cheats. He never looks at anyone with an ounce of lust. He is perfect. And he is the perfect savior because he is perfect. And you say, well, not me. I'm, I'm too far gone. You don't know what I've done. But friend, your sin is not bigger than his grace. There is more grace and mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. His payment was sufficient for your debt. You don't have to carry it. You can lay it down. Let it be erased. You can draw near to God today, which is your good, because he has drawn near to you. Verse 27 is a warning for anyone far from God, but it's also an invitation to find your refuge in Christ. How do we make God our refuge? Paul tells us in Romans 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be saved. He is a trustworthy refuge 
You can count on them. Third, we are called to God's mission. What is the psalmist's response? The end of verse 28. So that I may tell of all your works. We commend what we love. Maybe it's your football team. Maybe it's your favorite show right now. The last book you couldn't put down. We talk about the things we love. And this is what Asaph is doing. He remembers God's goodness. He remembers God's, God's promises and his response to talk about it. This is the Christian life. We commend his goodness to others in, in numerous ways. And I want to highlight just two of them. First, we declare God's goodness through praise as we gather. We declare who God is to one another when we gather together. We remind one another of God's promises. We Essentially, we gospel one another and we celebrate his grace. We come together with the people of God in the presence of God to declare his glory and encourage one another in the gospel. Does your heart enjoy God today? Are you happy in the Lord today? Maybe that's you. Praise God. Be an encouragement to others. Find someone else and encourage them in the gospel. Maybe that's not you today. And you come in here and you need believers in your life to refresh you with gospel encouragement. You need to come into the presence of God with the people of God around you and be reminded of the good news today. And this is why we gather every week. This is why we preach the Bible every week. This is why we take the Lord's Supper every week. God's people gathering together is our good. And so we gather together because God saves us into a people and we need one another. And some people say, you know, I like that Jesus guy. I'm not, I'm not really into that whole church thing, right? I'm fine with it being just me and Jesus. I don't need this, this church, this community, this whole, this whole committed to a people thing. But friends, there is no category in the Bible for a lone ranger Christian who just lives them and Jesus. God saves us into a people and he gives that people a mission. And so to be faithful as a Christian is to be committed and actively engaged, covenanted together with a local body of believers. We commit and we covenant with this specific people to follow Jesus together on mission. We declare his goodness through praise as we gather, and we declare God's goodness through proclamation as we scatter. A natural result of adoration is proclamation. The psalmist will declare all that God has done. The idea here is that he's rehearsing the glorious deeds of God. And this is our mission. We take the good news to the world. We tell about what God has done, especially in our own lives. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a story. You weren't born a Christian. No one was born a Christian. God saved you. You were dead in your sin. And God brought you into life. God brought you into his kingdom. And now you have a story to tell. So proclaim what he has done in your life. When we proclaim the good news of Jesus, whether it's from a Sunday pulpit or around the kitchen table, from the locker room to the boardroom, we proclaim hope to a broken world, mercy to a broken people, and rescue for anyone who calls out to him. That's good news. That's our mission, church. So where are you today, Christian? Are you in crisis or are you on mission? When we find ourselves in crisis, we run to the presence of God. We surround ourselves with the people of God and we remember the gospel. Psalm 73, 28 is a gospel verse. We find a summary 
of the good news and we find our main idea that we've been driving toward this whole time. We have a good God who has rescued us from sin and death. And in response, we declare his goodness to each other and the world. We have a good God who has rescued us from sin and death. And in response, we declare his goodness to each other and the world. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland writes about God's goodness. Listen to what he writes. The Christian life is a lifelong shedding of tepid thoughts of the goodness of God. He is rich unto all. That is, he is infinite, overflowing in goodness. He is good to a profuseness. He is good to the pouring forth of riches. He is good to an abundance. Christian, we have a good God. Let's expand our view of God's goodness and tell about all that he has done so that many may be rescued. If you're not a Christian, maybe you have questions. That's okay. God can handle those questions. And he asks a question of his own, maybe the most important question you've ever been asked. It's the same question Jesus asked Peter in Matthew 16. He asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And that's the question every person has to answer. Who do you say Jesus is? Friend, I invite you, I implore you, I plead with you. Stop looking for satisfaction from something horizontal to you. And find your peace and your joy and your good in the one who made you. He is infinitely good. He is good to the uttermost. Praise be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, we confess our need that we are inherently a broken people. And yet, God, we rejoice today because you have made a way of salvation through Jesus. We have a good Savior. We thank you. We thank you for the good Savior. We thank you for your mercy today. We pray, God, that you would lift our eyes to see not only the gravity of our sin, but the, the, the wonder of your mercy to us. God, as we turn to the table, we pray that you would stir our affections, soften our hearts, give us a deeper love for our Savior today. In his name that we pray, amen.